Hi, this is Dana Gould, and you're listening to New Dissident Radio. Hey, everyone. This is Kelly Carlin, and uh, welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Welcome. It's June. Yes, it's June. Uh, I don't even, I, <laughs> I can't even believe it's June. I really thought it was March still, but <clears throat> it's not. It's June according uh, to my calendar. Uh, that was a song called Some People uh, by a gentleman named Ross Falzone, and you can find his stuff at iTunes or uh, rossfalzone.com. And uh, welcome, everyone. I uh, just want to take a few minutes to just kind of process my week. Since I'm no longer in therapy, uh, I come here and uh, have three minutes with you to do my therapy session. <laughs> Hopefully my guest today will help me through some of this, too. I, I seem to be relying more and more on my guests these days. Th- maybe I need to go back. To- I, anyway, uh, I, so I'm still working on my show. I, I was telling you about last week. Uh, I'm, I'm calling it a one-family show, uh, a Carlin Home Companion. And when you enter in this kind of process with a new show like this, you you have an idea of what it's going to be, and then you start working on it, and that completely falls apart, and then it becomes like a big mystery. I'm calling it the larval stage right now. I'm just, it's kind of amorphous and gooey and it's not quite sure what it wants to become. Uh, but I know it'll be something eventually. And, uh, but the interesting thing is, is that I mean, I don't know if other people's work in the world is like this, but in order to do a show like this where I obviously am telling life stories, I have to process a lot emotionally because I don't want I don't want my shadow to show up on stage and have it being, you know, projected out there and people going, God, you know, she really does have anger issues about her dad and she needs to deal with those. <laughs> So I was walking today and I was like dealing with my anger issues with my dad. I'm like, you know what? Own it, Kelly. Own that, you know, at parts of your life, you really were pissed off at him and he was not a good dad and you wanted him to be around more. And it's okay to own that and feel that so that when you talk about it on stage, it's, um, it's real and authentic. And it's not like I'm trying to pretend that he was a perfect dad. 
and a perfect human being, uh, but that he was human. And like all of our dads and all of our moms, uh, you know, at times he was brilliant and at times he was a fuck up. And that doesn't mean he's bad and it doesn't mean I'm bad, but, but, you know, it's just, it's so interesting. You know, I mean, do, do people who, um, you know, make widgets in a factory, do they have to process their dad shit so their work goes more smoothly? I bet they do. You know, actually, now that I think about it, everyone needs to process their daddy shit in order for the, you know what, if everyone processed their daddy shit, the world would be a fucking better place. That much I know because people like George Bush, would not want to be president or wouldn't have been president and people wouldn't have voted for him because their daddy shit would have been worked out. And of course, you know, we wouldn't be throwing bombs on innocent people if our daddy shit was worked out and we wouldn't be raping women and we wouldn't be raping the environment. Wow. I think I have a new cause. Um, deal with your daddy org or something like that. Uh, so yeah, so here I am <laughs> airing my, my laundry, my dirty, my dirty daddy laundry. Oh, that sounds disgusting. Uh, out in public. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I just made him giggle. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's that. That's all I have to say. I, I miss you all. I've been really busy. I'm sorry. I have not been on the Twitterverse. Uh, lately having fun with you guys. Uh, I know we have a good time out there and on Facebook, but I've been actually out in the real world living a life. And I went up the woods. Oh my God, I went to the woods for the weekend and it was gorgeous. Uh, and then Sunday at our Saturday night at about midnight, it started raining and kept raining and kept raining and was still raining at 7am when we all got up. And then it started hailing. That's fun when you're camping and it's hailing and everything is wet already. So we packed up and came home, but we got it. We got about 48 hours in the woods, which was very nice. And much needed because I literally did unplug from cyberspace and found that my manic energy um, left my body for a little while. And, and that's a good thing. So that's part of the reason I haven't been back on Twitter because I find it, it feeds my manic energy. And uh, I, I probably need a little less of that these days. I need to channel it better. Uh, so my guest today, I'm thrilled he's here. Uh, he and I've met a couple of times. The last time we hung out actually was after the green room. It was the last show of the green room and he had been on the second to last show and some amazing shit went down on the show. And he and I sat upstairs in the green room for the green room actually, and, uh, just really hung out and had this amazing conversation. And I was like, God damn, we gotta, you know, you gotta come on my show eventually. So here he is like five months later. So my guest today is someone who you all know. He's uh, well. He's one of the probably the one of the greatest improvisers uh, that I know, certainly. Uh, and and of course, uh, claiming claims to be the smartest man in the world. We will test that today. I don't know how we're going to test it, but <laughs> I was warning people we were going to do algebra and geometry here uh -oh. for the whole show. He's like, oh no, we're not going to do that. Uh, so anyway, he comes from San Francisco. He lives here in L.A. Uh, you know, you, you could find him on, uh, I know on TV, one place you can find him is on the game show networks, the Drew Carey Improvaganza, I think it's called now. Uh, I don't know. Are you, are you on TV anywhere else these days? Uh, I'll be on Chelsea, uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, nice. Doing, yeah. doing Chelsea lately. And you're always on Craig Ferguson. Uh, I do Ferguson and, um, uh. I'm sure that there's reruns of Who's Line playing somewhere. Oh, right now as we speak, you know, actually. They're yeah. cutting you a very small check somewhere for that. Right. I'm One sure. One that's less than the stamp. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, he's uh, also uh, does an amazing live chat show at a little theater here in L.A., the grooviest theater in the world called, called Largo. And uh, he's done that all over the world and on all sorts of places. And and he's coming up to the Montreal uh, Comedy Festival. He's going to Edinburgh. He's uh, just back from Australia, New Zealand, which I want to hear about a little bit, too. So uh, here's my guest today, the fabulous Mr. Greg Proops. Welcome, darling. Thank you, Miss Kelly. What a pleasure to be here. Well, it's, a, it's really a great pleasure to have you in our little um, apartment here in East West Hollywood. Uh, this is one of the best parts of the bitter hinterlands of eastern and western Hollywood. It is. It is. Uh, across the street, if you did not know, that large, tall building, uh -huh. Ron Jeremy lives in that building. Sweet. Yes. I can't shake that dude. Uh, every gig I go to, he's there. So he was at the green room. He was at fact. the green room, sleeping in the audience. That's what I was going to say. Paul gave him hell, I remember, after the <laughs> show, because he was asleep the whole show. And Ron Jeremy was like, what? And that made me laugh. <laughs> and he brought the skankiest hose with him that day. Surely not. <laughs> So skanky and drunk. Uh, that seems true to form. I mean, I don't have yes. a handicapping sheet on Ron Jeremy, but if I were gonna, I'd say uh, SHs that were drunk. <laughs> is what I would say. That and 
obtrusive, or if that's a word, <laughs> obtrusive and intrusive. <laughs> yes, and that sounds painful, yeah. actually. And it will be with him, I assume. <laughs> I assume it would be very painful, absolutely. So, what are you up to these days? You're doing stand up and your show, and nothing. I'm yeah. joking, of course. Uh, I do a podcast called um, The Smartest Man in the World. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a joke. <laughs> uh, and that's at Bar Lubitsch usually, but next week it's at the Comedy Central space on the 1st. Oh, nice. And at Cool It. Um, sorry, people were honking <laughs> at us. They're honking at us, yeah, yes, they definitely. Were so honking at us. Um, <laughs> and that's been the funnest thing I've done in the last, uh, in, in ages, as far as comedy goes, because I found it to be. Uh, the free fall that I needed mm. and um, it's changed my stuff around as far as how I'm thinking about things. And uh, as a result of that, I went and did Paul Provenza's show, the set list last week. Mm-hmm. And um, his, uh, his partner, Troy asked me to do it or whatever you want to call him. His, his buddy. Yeah. Troy, the Troy created the show. Right. Yeah. The creator of the set list. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, yes, yeah. so I was in Australia when he emailed me. And um, then when I went, I, uh, glommed onto Paul like a barnacle and said, uh, <laughs> I really want to come do it in, and I hadn't done it yet. Right. <laughs> you just, you just knew the concept, I did, I just knew which by I the way, it. we'll just, we'll, we'll set up the concept for you here. The set, set list is an improvised stand-up show. And what happens is the stand-ups are backstage. They have no idea what their set is going to be. And a set is, if you people don't know, most of you do, it's the list of things, the list, list of bits you're going to do in your stand-up show. So the, the stand-ups have no idea, and they literally come out on stage, and they are, it is like propped up for them on the stage, their set list, and they have to like read it and scan it and start doing a set immediately. So anyway. Yeah, that's exactly it. So yes. you got 30 seconds and there was a timer. And about 20 seconds into the timer, I realized I couldn't register anything on the piece of paper because I was dizzy with fright. Oh, no. And um, I went after Eddie Pepitone, um, Rick Overton, and another cat whose name I forget, a young cat. Oh, golly. Well, the picture's on Facebook. He was very funny. Uh um, uh, Forgive me for being aged and having Alzheimer's, (laughs) or at least partial Alzheimer's. And uh, so... uh, Having watched three comics do it yes. and saw the process go down three times, it made it no less intimidating. <laughs> I said to Rick after, this is horrible. I thought after I watched you three guys, I'd be like, watch me crack this egg. <laughs> and instead, I got up there and I looked at the sheet and all I saw were swirling, like um, the Matrix, you know, right. green, green numerals. And uh, then it just happened. And so I really, and then afterward, they were like, oh, that's good. I was like, uh, and two comics came up to me, two young guys uh, who do uh, a show called... Um, Allah made me funny. They, they're like Muslim comics. Uh-huh, they, they uh-huh. When you thought of this line, did you just think of that or did you have that? And I was like, dude, I don't even remember <laughs> what uh, I said. So then I, that led to, now I'm going to do it in Montreal. They're doing it, I think, one or maybe two nights up in Montreal. Yeah, and yeah. I'll probably go to Edinburgh as well and do a couple nights up there at the end of the month uh, yeah. in August. So I've glommed on to Paul. And also another reason was, Kelly, because – uh, I've watched what Paul's done over the last several years mm. and uh, I've needed to do uh, not what Paul did, but mm-hmm. in my own way, like I saw how he took control of his comedy and the respect that he pays comedy made him uh, someone everybody wants to deal with. Yes. And um, ha- I got to do the book. He asked me to do the, the Satirista book. Right? Yes. And he had Durst come in with me, who is an old friend of mine and, uh, sort of unknown mentor. He would never say he was my mentor, mm. but he, you know, he was mm. sort of in my mind, my comedy mentor mm-hmm. along with the several other guys. And, um, and then I did, uh, 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 the green room. Yes. Thank, uh, thank Christ. And, um, after that I thought, you know, I've got to learn something from Paul because uh, he's doing yeah. exactly the kind of book I always wanted to do that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the kind of comedy shows he does like the set list in the green room are so free form and so defy what network people would consider a show. Yes, yes. That I was excited beyond all measure. Yeah. And uh, I, I love the, the risk of just be, tr- hopefully being funny at the moment. Not like I'm doing now, but for real being funny at the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you talked about the, the free fall. There's something about the free fall for Ooh. you that excites you. What, what, what is that? Well, also, yeah, because, first of all, I, I don't need a script at all. We can just go. Right. But in the set list, they give you topics that you didn't pick, and mm. then the audience provides topics out of a box. <laughs> yes. So you look at the thing, and last week it was like, oh, I forget what it was, um, Sunday Expert. And the first one was Hamburgers and Helmets. And ha- just having any kind of guidepost at all gives you something to, you uh-huh. know, that, and that's where it begins with me. Like, uh-huh. That hopefully sends you spinning 
And then I ended up talking about something and was able to bring back stuff the other guys had said because I had the advantage of going nice. last. And then hopefully I think by the last time I do or the next time I do it, I'll have figured out a way to call back things I do earlier. And, you know, Wow. Um, that seems like an advanced level of it, the callback within the improvised set. Well, as you know, nothing is funnier than a callback and nothing is funnier than an improvised callback because the audience can't believe you remembered something you said five minutes ago yes. because they've already forgotten it. Yes. And uh, Keith Johnstone, I can't believe I'm quoting Keith Johnstone. I never really studied Johnstone. I guess we did kind of, but uh, he's considered like the master, you know, in improv and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, Spolin when I started, that's how I, I go studied. Some Spolin, yes, you know? yeah. Uh, but then John Stone when we got a little older. Um, in any case, uh, he said uh, the, the greatest thing about improv is improv's walking backwards. Hmm. And so for me, like just getting hamburgers and helmets, that's always there. Right, right, right. In the distance, even as it recedes. Right. Five minutes in when you're doing something else, that uh, yeah. they know where you're they know where you've been, uh-huh. they don't know where you're going. Uh-huh. And so the trick is to spin it out and make it funny where you're going. I mean for me, I think the real trick will be to not do anything I've written over the last 285 years because <laughs> yes. you have a lot of ideas and we all, you know, yeah. we well, all can remember stuff we said. Well, yeah, and I think part of it as an audience member, I've only seen it once, and I saw Dana Gould do it. Oh, well, he's a master. And when I saw him do it, and it was, it was I didn't, uh, I saw a couple of the other comedians and one or two of them I kind of knew their stuff. Yeah. But when I saw Dana do it, it was like, oh, this is a Dana Gould show. Yeah. Like it just happened to be these topics though. Right. And so, and there might've even been, he might've even thrown in a couple of things that I, you know, he's heard or he's said before or played with before, yeah. but now they were in a whole different context right. and yet it was still a Dana Gould set. That's what was so cool about it. Yeah. yeah. No, well, then you're making me feel better if I throw one in because yeah. the context changes it. Yeah, it really, Absolutely. it really does. You can't does. wedge a routine into something that's. Not ready for it. Yeah, yeah. I would have loved to see. See, he's the person that, I, when I saw that he did it, I thought, oh, this is, you know, because he's an automatic writer mm-hmm. on top of being a genius writer. Mm-hmm. So sitting in a room writing for me is difficult, for him easier, mm-hmm. uh, but he could do it on stage too, and he's the living end. He's amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he knows how to tie ideas together and, and, <laughs> and, and have character and depth and stuff. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things I've always wanted in my act, the more uh, I always find Dana could do. Now, the progression or the evolution of your own act, like over the years, what has become easier for you? In my own act? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think honesty with the audience has gotten to be easiest of all. Hmm. Like I just booked a gig in Cleveland uh, for a couple weeks from now. And the last time I played there last year uh, in one of the sets, um, a woman was exceedingly drunk and, and toying with my trouser leg, right? Because you're way high on a rock and roll stage. Right. And she had enormous chests. <laughs> and she was uh, quite inebriated, yes. and she kept going, "I love you, I love you." And I was like, "Baby doll, honey, I understand, and I'm awfully fond of you." I go, "But you mustn't pull my leg because you know there's a situation." <laughs> and uh, then I started talking about being from San Francisco and how everything's not liberal enough for me, and that when we elect a Filipino lesbian dwarf <laughs> as president, then you, you can call me and tell me the country changed. And her boyfriend, who's this big black guy, goes. Yeah, right on. I want a lesbian. And like kind of overemphasizes the point to that where you're, you know, too much of a witness. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right, right, right. So I'm like, you guys, you got to, you know, calm down. And everybody's sort of registering how it's getting a little crazy. And the next thing I know, two uniformed Cleveland police are at the table. Oh. Right? And they take them out and they leave. And of course, they ask for their money back, which I love. And um, <laughs> I said to the crowd, if you guys have never been to a comedy show before, all of them are exactly like this. <laughs> I said, they end with a police apprehending someone. It's all of my shows have this fever pitch of, <laughs> I actually get armed forces involved. I mean, these uniform cops, and the crowd, you can imagine what two uniform cops do to a crowd. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like a bummer. You <laughs> know? Totally like, buzz not kill. just drive a squad car into the, <laughs> exactly. you know, and they were just appalled. And at that point, I was losing control laughing, mm. and which is not always the best thing. <laughs> right. I was I couldn't get over how funny it was that they'd sent the police in. Wow. I thought surely a bouncer could have you know yes. the bouncer had come up several times at that <laughs> point and I think he was just exasperated. He was bounced back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so I think uh if it had been another time mm-hmm. in my life mm-hmm. I might have yelled more. Uh I might have gotten um verbally abusive to the point where I decimated them mm-hmm. in front of the crowd. Mm-hmm. I might have done a lot of things that I still do occasionally that I'm not proud of because um, I can be a little aggressive with the crowd uh-huh uh, and I think that that was one uh, that I kind of took it the you know uh, even though it ended with a 
police arrest cops, <laughs> Dania Ma. Uh, I didn't write that part. Right. Um, you know, in the old days in San Francisco when I was a comic, uh, in the 90s, in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, the waitresses would go, I hate that couple up front. You know, go get them, right? And I go, okay. And I would just lay into people, right? Wow. And, uh, uh, it's fun for me, but it's not particularly the most fruitful or ca- karmic, you know, re- karmically rewarding. <laughs> yes. And now, of course, as the years have gone on, I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't want to talk to people in the crowd even at all. Yeah. Really. I don't talk, you know, I don't, hey, where are you from? I don't do any right, of Right, you don't do crowd work, as no. they say. So, but when people do try to start crowd work with me, I'll say, you know, like, I, you, you should listen. <laughs> <laughs> this this is this is a monologist show yeah. actually, and mono means one people, yeah. and it's monomania. I'm but just... I will riff. I mean, I'll riff and I'll riff off the crowd, but I, I don't really like talking to people about their jobs or stuff. I feel like it's my job to be more important, uh, more interesting rather, yes, uh, and make it more important than anything the crowd could say because you, you don't, you know. Although I, you know, I like to improvise. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it it's. It's, I think it's a fine balance between uh, – th- there's always this conversation going on between mm. what – as a person standing on a stage performing, you're here to present something, and yet w- you wouldn't be presenting it unless there were people sitting in front of you receiving it. Absolutely. You know, and so there's this interesting negotiation – with the audience that has to happen. Well, as I always tell them, I'm glad they're there, but they're not absolutely necessary <laughs> because I have a huge ego. And if I was alone, I'd be doing it in a room alone because I, I'm mesmerized by my voice. Uh, and what I have to say to myself is fascinating. I'm fascinating. But I think we were talking about this at the green room even was the, the connecting with the audience and the performers that I'm always amazed by that can connect, whether they're singers or actors or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the important thing about any performance is to connect mm-hmm. on whatever level. And um, uh, if I'm not going to let them talk to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. then I have to provide some kind of you know, yes. bridge. Yes, absolutely. Uh, with the set list, the connection's absolute because you've removed the audience being against you at any point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, simply from the word go, they are hoping, fingers crossed, <laughs> you come up with something good. Yes. More than an improv show. Yeah. Because, oh my God, they see the topic too. Obedience, administration. And, and your, brain, your yeah. brain starts going, right, right. what would I do? What would I do? Because it's on the board, man. Hamburgers and helmets. And they're all like, well, where is this going to go? <laughs> Jesus if Christ. If you can pull anything out of it, and that's what I saw uh, the other night was with the other guy's sets, Anything they hit that was even remotely a, a, a base hit or a, a, you know a yeah. solid connection, the audience went crazy yeah. because they understood the uh, uh, you know you're at the steeplechase in the Olympics level. There's a lot of hazards. There's <laughs> bushes. Yes. You've got an animal under you. You yes. don't know what it's going to do. You only really people are shooting at you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that one really upped the stakes while keeping the crowd there. Yeah. As opposed to they always try to do crazy things that up the stakes. Not they. Uh, every comedian show that I've ever done where they do something like Chris Hardwick used to do one called, um, oh, Kittens, what's the name of it? Uh, mm. But you, the, it was, you, there was a wheel of topics and uh-huh. then you would get topics. It was like this one, but uh. you could do material if you had it. Right. And then they're, uh, then they're on the wheel, it would say like crowd work. So you had to go out and walk into the crowd for a few minutes. Wow, and, wow. And then in between, you dissed the other comedians as hard as you humanly could. <laughs> wow. It started with three, then it was two, and then it was one, right? And the audience voted at the end, and you just ranked on each other. Wow. And uh, it was really fun. Uh, joke Machine. The mm. Joke Machine, mm. it was called. That's and a I great won title. It once. <laughs> And I got my head beat in a couple times on it, and but it had that added element of, oh really? Well, uh, Kelly, you know, right, you right, know, just the one-upmanship, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, which made it hilarious, uh, and the audience loved it. But the, the set list sort of removes any animosity and only kind of a, it's only a, a, a you know, literally you couldn't have an audience more on your side because yeah. if it starts to suck, they're like, come on, buddy, <laughs> come on, buddy, you can do it. Yeah. Come on, hamburgers, remember yeah, hamburgers, yeah, remember yeah. hamburgers. Yeah. You were talking about connection and something about being an audience member, and and I think this is why stand up is such an interesting art form. I really i th- I think about it sometimes, and I think, wow, someone comes out and stands in front of a group of people and makes them laugh, mm-hmm. like that's your whole job. And yet, what I really see is that there's something in it about the audience getting to watch another mind making leaps and connections in a surprising way 
that our minds haven't thought of. And yet when you make the connection and it resonates with our neurons, it's like we're one big happy human species oh, for yeah. the moment. Yeah. You know, and and there, there's something about being human and needing that 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 type of experience shared experience with with the rest of the humans here on earth you know mm-hmm. well it's certainly my favorite part mm-hmm. uh I, and i think that's why i do it and i think any legitimate comic that is why they do it mm-hmm. it's their favorite part of the human experience you get bored with it and you get frustrated because a, a million other things come with it business and all that yes. but the absolute act of it yeah never leaves i think in my mind i and that's why I'm putting myself in this position of doing the set list and doing the podcast um, to make more of a connection, honestly. Mm. Because without having the material to fall back on or mm. my own sassy snideness every second or uh-huh. ripping on the crowd, you yeah. can't rip on the crowd at the yeah. set list. You could, but only for a second. Yeah. Know? If it was uh, on the list, you could. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. But you, that can't be the game plan. The game plan has to be yeah. complete freedom. And, like, uh, and so I really feel like that's what got me so excited about both these things to uh, have people recognize what you're saying, mm-hmm. even though you're just coming out, coming out with it and not pre-planning it. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm finding that on my writing uh, on the road has uh, stalled like any comic uh, and that it's not up to where I am as a person or what I'm talking about on, on different comedy shows. Hmm. And I need to fix that. And that's my big quest in the next year to break everything up to Clubs are a different animal than a podcast. Yes. I can't go on in a club and stalk the nasty, seditious jazz that I talk yeah. on a podcast and expect paying customers in the Midwest to appreciate that when they have every expectation right. <laughs> and right to yeah. believe that I have 45 minutes of prepared jokes. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. <laughs> and and so in, in order to, to create this new level of material for yourself – uh, what do you have to be willing to like let go of? Well, I'm going to start, I think, by just dropping a lot of the older things that aren't as salient mm. and uh, uh, push myself to write on stage, which I can do. Mm. Uh, I, I go with the Louis C.K. method. It's very impressive because Louis is such a superb writer that he says he doesn't sit down and write. Uh, this is my understanding. He's never told me this. I've read this. About right. Him. That he writes it on stage. Uh-huh. And that's always been the way I did it. Sometimes things spring fully blown into your head. Like yes. a song. Yes. Right? Like you'll think of a whole joke or a whole routine and it just... Yep. It, uh, like the Matrix. Hey, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> that's my second Matrix reference. And I haven't seen a sci-fi movie since then, you guys. Uh, Clearly. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Just the one with the dog. But uh, uh, <laughs> um, I think that's how I'll do it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll have ideas. Go on with them. Right. Uh, you know, like I'm at, I'm at, where am I next week? I'm at uh, Tiger Lily on Monday. Mm-hmm. And I'm determined at Tiger Lily not to crack out too much old junk mm-hmm. and to kind of like take four or five ideas on with me and beat them up. Right, right. And, you know, and do, do or die, fix bayonets. Ju- jump into that void a little bit. And every time I've done it there, it's worked. That's the thing. The audience knows immediately when it's fresh. And yeah. they know immediately when you're being honest. If I come in and I go, what is this place? And just start. They like, oh my God. And if I come in with... Oh, I thought of a thing, you know, they, they can smell material, especially yeah. when you're presenting it poorly because you're hammering through it for the millionth time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. So I, I think uh, that's the plan. <laughs> that, that, that That's great. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm working on this, this live show myself and I, I'm a writer first as my dad was, he, he wrote his material yeah. And he, he perfected the phrasing. And he wrote on stage, too. I mean, he, he, he would tape every single concert he did, and then he would listen to it the next day right. and pick up anything new that was in it and inter- integrate it. <clears throat> so for the show, I thought at first, I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to uh, write it on its feet. And I'm just going to audio tape it and write it on its feet. Uh-huh. And, and I started to do that, and I was all over the place. I mean, it was oh, yeah. really, really hard for me. And I listened back to it, and I thought, how the fuck am I going to do this? Yeah. And so I, I decided, since I am a writer, and, I, and I'm, I'm really an essayist, that's what I do. I do storytelling. I write essays that, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet somewhere halfway in between. I'm going to do, I'm going to write it out, but I'm really going to then tentpole the story and then, you know, mm-hmm. be able to, to do that. So, so for me, it's, it's, it's its own kind of thing. Now, I know you also have done storytelling because we did Sit and Spin together right. once and you did that great Chicken Delight story, which... 
I just always think about because I grew up in Beverly Hills and yes. there was a chicken delight here. And I remember what she said to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you, when you do storytelling like that, is that something you did on your feet to begin with or did you sit down and write that? No, and you're exactly right. Because there were strict parameters on the word count and how long it had to be, I sat down and wrote it. I wrote it on a plane on the way back from New York. I had loads of time. I've, I'd told the story before, or I think I had, or mm-hmm. I, maybe I'd written it before. Uh, in any case, I'm familiar enough with my own story that I was able to kind of... And then I went through it with a comb, yes. like a good writer, and uh, knocked out everything that was superfluous, and added a few little jazzier things to the beginning and end to kind of make it more of a story. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know you have to end. Yes. Uh, and I couldn't rely on improvising or snorfiness or whatever. The words had to kind of carry the day. Yeah. So, I mean, for you're an essayist. I don't consider myself an essayist. Uh, it's a perfect form for the show about your family because, in essence, it is a long essay punctuated with his point of view as well. Yes, yeah. And so with simultaneous essays, one of which has a thread, the other can be a slightly more random. But as you say, when you temple it, it'll all kind of pull together and look like, you know... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when you do a story... Uh, if with a beginning, middle, and end, mm. essential things have to happen in the beginning. Essential things have to happen in the middle, and essential things have to happen in the end. And and that's kind of the fun part too is figuring out like for for this show that I mean, it's like it's about uh, seventy five minutes. About thirty of it is clips from right. my dad, and so really trying to figure out what is, you know, what is the arc. And and the interesting thing about writing, which I love, is you have an idea of what you think the arc is going to be, and then you start to work on something, and it tells you right it tells you what it's going to be yeah, yeah. that part's not good do this other part yeah and and that is the thrilling part i think of this process right. but also the terrifying part yeah. because you realize you're really not in charge right and you're wrong <laughs> your inclinations and impulses are decidedly <laughs> yes. wrong and the thing you should be doing is apparent but not to you yes and <laughs> and and maybe uh feel riskier the thing that you need to do Mm -hmm. that's really apparent and that's when it's like that's like i think what i was going through today was like oh this 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 aspect of this emotional life that i have with my dad Mm. this needs to be present i can't be pretending that this isn't real or this isn't happening and and it it doesn't have to be like an oh woe is me this is what the story is about but i have to acknowledge you know what he he was missing for me emotionally at times in my life you know and 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 yet it's like I'm hyperventilating when I think about doing it. It's it's very strange. Well, you have that added element of this is the most intimate possible. These aren't just stories you're telling about yeah. your family. Yeah. And also your father's beloved. Yes. Uh, but you got to know that everyone, if you talk about him being emotionally not there for you, there's not one person who's not going to be right on board with that. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it was their mother, their father, or whom it is. Right. They will find the person that he represents. <laughs> yes. You and know, that's not my job. My, no. Right. No. And it's not your job to – you don't have to create drama. There's already drama there. Yeah. And yeah. everyone will be, one, uh, absolutely fascinated to know from your point of view. And two, yeah. ab- completely sympathetic and empathetic to what you're talking about. You know? No yeah. one's going to go like, oh, I can't believe she's sniveling about that. <laughs> she grew up in a big house with a pool. <laughs> You know? Her father was a comedy guy. Because that's not what you, you know, you're not Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow telling the story. You're, <laughs> you're you telling the story, you know. You have the perspective of, you know, knowing what people's lives are like and stuff like that. Yes, so. I do. Well, and this kind of brings me to the topic of fame or 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 being being known more and, and having the pressure to live up to the projections that an audience mm. has for you. Um, and you've certainly gotten more and more famous over the years and you have an audience, you have a following. People know who you are. That's very kind of you. Well, I'm just speaking truth here. Uh, so do you, do you ever think about that? Like who, who am I supposed to be for these people or is that? Yeah. Uh, But not in those terms. Mm -hmm. I never think, what should I do for them? Right. The great mass of people. I think what, what should I do? That's more honest uh, Uh. or more, uh, real and that's uh, kind of where I'm at now. I mm. mean, I, not that I'm going to be explosively exploring my emotional state. I, I never do that. Uh, or your only, genitalia. Exactly. <laughs> there will be no talk about any excrement or any bodily functions Thank at any you. point in my career. Uh, but um, uh, I, I, I do because – and also I have a – I have – because I do improv and I do it with the, all the Who's Line guys in England and here. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I have a lot of Who's Line fans, and they watch the Improvagans on GSN, some of them. And yeah. they know me from that. And a lot of them don't even know I'm a stand-up. Uh-huh. And a lot of them, and maybe not a lot, but some of them, I think, when, if they heard my podcast or when they do hear the podcast or when they hear the stand-up, they're a little bit put out. Or they, they, it wasn't what they expected. It wasn't in their comfort zone for whatever reason, politics. And uh, <laughs> they all of a sudden, you know, those are the people who say, well, I didn't know he just did lame political jokes, uh. meaning like you have an opinion and I wasn't ready for that opinion. <laughs> right. It's, I, it's I not speak, my opinion. Right, I speak Codenese. and. <laughs> right. uh, I speak what other people are uh, – I mean, that's the thing about being a comedian. Um, the bullshit detector is pretty lively. Yeah. So when people say a comment or something that's oblique and meant to be left-handed, mm. I get what they're talking about. Yes. It's not that hard. Uh, and, like, I did a, a political set on Last Comic Standing a few years ago. It was before the election. It was about Hillary and Obama and all this. And a, a lot of people really detested it. Hmm. Uh, and, like – and I know they were people who saw me on Who's Line. And, well, he used to be funny. <laughs> But now he's up there talking about politics and like – and you know it's because they, they didn't agree or they're – if you'll pardon this and I hope people will, they weren't sophisticated enough comedy fans yes. to listen to something they disagree with and still enjoy They it. just shut it down. Yeah. 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 Like uh, there's comedy that I don't subscribe to that I can still enjoy. Yes. Because I am intellectually agile enough <laughs> – <laughs> to make the leap from my beliefs to what's happening on stage. That's right. And I don't have to believe everything someone's saying. I can simply be entertained by it. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of people aren't that way. They can't separate their crappily thought out, poorly held beliefs from their sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And it's because they haven't seen enough mm. or whatever. Or they grew up in a, a non-comedy household where they weren't exposed to different points of view. Yeah. So yeah. that's my opinion, at least. I mean, I, I, I hope by... Saying that, uh, that I'm not alienating his line people, but they have to understand that I do have my own opinion about stuff, and I'm still going to do the cute, funny improv, Yeah, but it's going to be different because I'm in a group, and that's why I'm not giving my poison opinion because I'm not trying to queer the Beatles. Right, well, and I, I think this you're, just, you're making a great point about life in general yeah. is that you know I think a more mature uh, psyche uh, can dance around into different perspectives and play yeah. with them. Um, I mean... I think that that's the, that's part of the fun of of like being an improv person is that you're asked to immediately jump into being a pirate. Like if you can't jump into other perspectives, you can't be a pirate, you know, yeah. or or whatever it is. Yeah. And and I and I think that is like actually a sign of of cognitive maturity in some in some ways. And and I think because of the dumbing down of our culture and the people who just sit on their asses and just receive really bad television mm. and, and other kind of media and, and, and don't stimulate their own thinking, they don't know even how to have a different perspective or, yeah. or to give someone a chance who just because maybe they have a certain political leaning uh, that they could actually be funny. I mean, that, that's the thing I thought was always interesting about my dad because he would say things that I didn't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. Uh, but fuck, man, he made me laugh about yeah. it. You know, I mean, I, I actually, I'm a huge cycling fan and a huge Lance Armstrong fan, right. you know, and my dad, oh my God. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right and I kind of know that he went out and did that on his last show. He comes out and he yeah. says, you know, fuck Lance Armstrong, yeah. which I died laughing, which uh, me too, yeah, yeah. because it's so brilliant. And then of course he makes the point, which is, I don't like other people picking my heroes yeah. for me, yeah. you know, and that's the bigger point of it. But, but I, I, I I, th I think that's really important for our egos to be challenged like that, to say, you know, you don't have the only perspective on the planet, that you're not in charge mm -hmm. completely, and that someone else actually, you know, you might not agree with a certain uh, policy holding or understanding of something, but th they're allowed to have that perspective and, and look at the world from it and make fun of the world from it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree totally. I mean, I, no, I can't speak for your dad, but I would think he would have run into that more than any comedian uh, because there were so many mainstream routines that he did that I'm sure people yelled out and he's thinking, fuck you. I want to do yeah. the news thing that I thought of. I don't want to do football or whatever. Right. And I then the do... crowd turns into a Donnybrook and then he gets mad and goes, fuck you to the crowd. And yeah. Then... Well, that happened in Vegas a lot right. because he would go Vegas around. crowd's completely uncontrollable. Yeah, exactly. Because he, he would go to Peoria and of course Peoria people have been waiting for 18 months yeah, for him to care. show up. Say anything. Right. We Please. You. We want George Carlin. And we want the new. We right. The new. And we want the newest thing. Whereas Las Vegas, they're picking between Cirque du Soleil, Blue yeah. Man Group and, you know, whoever right. else and, and, you know, and the, and the rah-rah show. And and of course, and, and yeah, they're like, oh, George Carlin, 
isn't he the hippy dippy uh-huh. weatherman? Right, right, you know, right. and that was forty years ago. Right. <laughs> How come he doesn't do wonderful wino? Yeah, and then he's out on stage doing uh, things about auto asphyxiation. Right. <laughs> And he wonders why he gets fired from and, the NGO. And fuck your belief system, and <laughs> yes. the, there's no God. And there's no and, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff that the people really still don't want to hear, which speaks to the power one of, of his vision, but of what we can all kind of hope and aspire to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. With any kind of honesty, I don't think you have to change the world every time you do a set, but I don't think it, it's a bad a motive. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I, like I think that. It, it leads to a loftier. Yeah. When I see someone who really throws down. Even if I disagree with them, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, uh, I'd rather have that sometimes than. I mean, I'm I'm as e- you know easily entertained as the next you know mm-hmm. munchkin. Me I too. Me, <laughs> trust me. me too. But uh, uh, I, I do prefer uh, to be agitated by the comics, and I also I'm not a huge su- uh, seduction fan. Mm. And um, I think I told you when I saw your dad years ago, he opened with "fuck you." I just want to make you feel at home. <laughs> And he was getting a standing ovation when he said, fuck you. And that was my favorite part of the show. I said to my wife, other than the amazing parts of it, I was like, I love that. Because I used to say to the crowd, they'd, I'd get a big hand when I come on and I'd go, shut up. Mm. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people would get really mad and say, I can't believe he tells the crowd to shut up. And I was like, it's a joke. <laughs> One. Two. <laughs> Uh, like the smartest man in the world, there's people who go, you're not the smartest man in the world. And you're like, duh, I know I'm not. The-. I go, but I'm smart enough to know I'm not the smartest right. man in the world. Like, you guys, a guy told me I should do it because he said that's how you come off. And I thought, that's hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I don't know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> uh, we, um, we, have a, we have a couple of more minutes here. Okay. Um, what was I going to um, – oh, yeah. Uh, what was I going to talk? Oh, oh yeah, uh, you you live in LA. I do, and and it's it, the thing on your website. It says that, that you love LA. Do you really? I say I like it. Oh, you like it? Uh, oh, sorry, that's different than. See, I'm from San Francisco, so saying that you like LA is enough of a compromise it, it, to it completely. It is. That's a huge make thing. My friends at, in San Francisco hate me. Now, now here's my and I could be. I mean, this is just my opinion about San Francisco. But when I, I was up there a few weeks ago, and I love San Francisco. I love the Bay Area. It's gorgeous. I want to live there. I want to live in those little Victorian houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, just, it's so beautiful. Nature is right, right there. I mean, LA nature is here too. But I find that there's something about the people who live in San Francisco. They're a little too serious and earnest for me. Oh, yeah. And snotty and parochial. Yes. Well, my joke, I think I said it once. It wasn't a joke I wrote. I was riffing on San Francisco. And uh, so you go to another town and you go, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to an Italian restaurant? People go, it's two blocks down and you turn left. In New York, they're right with you. Yeah, it's over there. In San Francisco, I'm looking for an Italian restaurant. People in San Francisco will go, well, good for you. (laughs) I guess you really need that. You know, like, what? What happened? What happened to the, we missed a whole section of our relationship. <laughs> Everything went so fast. Because people in San Francisco don't give a shit if you're not from there, man. Yeah. When you show up and you're just there, they're like, great. <laughs> I got some shit to do. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's not including you. And those are even the people who work in all the tourist things, too. It's uh, probably the most popular tourist destination in the country. Yeah. And uh, the people of San Francisco are completely emotionally <laughs> unequipped to deal with visitors <laughs> at any point. It's like you rudely kind of came over and we didn't know you were coming even though you've been coming for 150 years. And we've invited you? Uh-huh, because we're cooler than you. And please don't go to the places we go. Please stay at the wharf. Uh, the idea of someone wearing shorts and a fanny pack uh, and, a, and, a, and a visor in June or July in San Francisco when it's yes. freezing. Yes, absolutely. And that means you don't know. You haven't been there before. Yes. You're an idiot. Right. You think it's warm like the shithole you come from. <laughs> I used to do it for 10 minutes when I'd open in San Francisco because I played Cobbs, which was down on the wharf. And right. I'd go, it's a little bit different here than where you're from. For instance, you might have noticed you were freezing today. <laughs> it's summer. And yeah, your crappy outfit you wear in Indiana isn't happening here. You need a coat. And I go, and you may notice there's no billboards that say, like, get the U.S. out of the U.N. or any of that bullshit. <laughs> And then in those days, of course, it was a, we, when Willie Brown was mayor, he had beaten Tom Amiano in one election. Mm-hmm. I said, this is the only town where a gay guy ran against a black guy and neither of them were liberal enough. <laughs> That's how it's different than the Christian shithole you're from. And we let gays live amongst us, you know, like, and I'd go through a thousand things. And it's like, oh, wow. and that I think. We're a little too serious and earnest, but it's where my whole personality got developed. And mm. that's why I love it. Uh, I don't think I would be the comic anywhere near the comic I am if I didn't grow up 
with all the comics around me, Warren Thomas, who was a genius, hmm. and, uh, and Slayton and Durst and Paula Poundstone and uh, mm. a hundred other comedians. from Dana. Mm. Uh, Dana was a headliner when I was in middle. And I, he's younger than me. He was such a genius. He was yeah. headlining when he was like 22 years old. You wow. Know? And I watched all these guys. And that's where all the information comes from. To go on stage in San Francisco and not have something to say and not have information in your act is unheard of. Wow. Very few people go up there and just do like good old, good time right. rock and roll. <laughs> right. like people get up there and like, you know... There's comics there from now. Uh, Jim Short, who lives here now. He's mm -hmm. a San Francisco comic via Australia. Mm -hmm. Unbelievably pertinent. Joe Klosek, who I think is the last comic who lives in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, he's really cogent and trenchant and, like, throws fastballs, you know, wow. and, and uh, hard to hit sometimes. And, like, I just think it's a tradition up there to kind of be that kind of comic. You don't want the crowd... You, they have to meet you. Yes. And yes. the crowds there are up for it. Yeah. That's yeah. what makes them good crowds. The very detachment that they bring to everything else right. makes them a little bit. And that's quite a bar to have to. Well, you know, you play here at like the improv and the improv is a perfectly lovely club here on Melrose, but some nights it can be like the Simi Valley Sheriff convention <laughs> came in <laughs> because it did. And it did. <laughs> and then I find that I'm talking to no one and you think I'm in the middle of LA in West Hollywood and the things that I'm saying that if I was out on the street talking to anyone about, they would understand. Yes. These but suddenly, are, yes, they're, they're, from 35 they're miles clueless. Away. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. They so, might as well be from, well, Missouri's lovely place. I'm it is sure a it is place. a lovely place. Everywhere. That's the thing. And I'll, I know we have to wrap, but yes. uh, uh, one thing people ask me and, uh, and I will, because you're asking me about my material on, and especially since we're talking about the road, um, I adore playing Atlanta, mm. North Carolina, uh, 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 like I'm going to Cleveland. Um, people go, do you do your same poisonous, you know, routine that you do in San Francisco? Poisonous, gee, thanks. You know, in L.A. Do you do that in the South? And, 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 and I go, yeah, I do. Yeah. And they're like, well, what do they think? And I'm like, they get it because, one, I'm, I'm a good enough comedian to sell it to mm -hmm. them. And mm. two, they're, I don't buy the whole red, blue. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I just don't. Yeah, there are parts of the country that are scary and stuff like that, and there's rednecky parts. But even in those parts, they're smart enough to get jokes. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, we're not talking about we're not two separate people divided by like you know weaponry and right. We're, we're, they're not the Spartans, and we're not the Athenians. You know what <laughs> yet, I mean? Like, yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we do have to wrap it up. Okay. And since you mentioned Atlanta, I just want to shout out there for our friend Justin in Atlanta. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mr. Morgan. <laughs> So, hey, Justin, you get a shout-out today on the show. Uh, <clears throat> I, I want to thank you, Greg, for, for being here. It was great to have you. Thank you, Miss Kelly. It was very lovely. And uh, we're going to have so much fun in Montreal together. It'll be just like a joyous big family thing. Uh, I want to thank everyone. I thank uh, Johnny Dam for uh, running this fabulous place, New Dissident Radio, and all the people in the Twitterverse and all you fabulous people. If you have music for me or any kind of feedback, you can find me at WFADradio at gmail.com. Of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on crack. No, I'm not on crack. I'm just kidding about that. Anymore. No, yeah. Okay, you'll have to come to my one family show to find out about exactly. that part of my life. See if we burn a rock before you hit the stage. <laughs> I am awfully warm tonight. Can we open a window in here? So anyway, uh, we're going to end the show here with a song called Modern World by a, a lovely young man named Jazz Kulner. And you can find him on iTunes and, of course, jazzkulner.com. And uh, you know what I have to say about everything? Uh, it's a lovely universe and uh, it's, it's a modern world so uh, uh, Joe bless you
New Dissident Radio. New Dissident Radio. On the interweb. Listen before it's illegal.